turn back to Ephesians 6 tonight. And uh, I'm doing something I don't do much of. And that's kind of looking at each one of these things individual and taking a topical approach. I, as you well know, I like to go through a book of a Bible, passage by passage. And so uh, kind of taking a topical approach for several weeks now is unusual. I don't do much of it. And Sunday mornings lending itself towards that too on the doctrinal study. So uh, uh, just, just bear in mind the approach is a bit different. Uh, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His mind. Put on the whole armor of God. I'm in Ephesians 6, beginning there in verse 10. I see some just turning there, so I'll give you a minute and I'll start over. Got it? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. We'll stop there tonight. You know, I, I closed out last week by talking a moment about evangelism explosion. Dr. D. James Kennedy, who used to pastor uh, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale. And of course, Evangelism Explosion is a 16-week course on sharing your faith. Uh, young in the ministry, he was going around with an older minister and noticing the ease at which that older minister had talking to people about the gospel. And that older minister mentored him and then he wrote the course, Evangelism Explosion. Has anybody in here been through that? So th three of us, okay? Uh, been quite a while since I've been through it, but uh, you remember what I said last week that as they were getting ready to go to print with that and get it started initially, uh, the, the folks at Evangelism Explosion did a survey and asked people, if you're not sharing your faith, why are you not sharing your faith? And they got some of the answers they expected. Because I'm afraid. I don't have the courage. Uh, what if I'm rejected or made fun of? Those standard answers. But do you remember last week I told you that what surprised them, the number one answer that came back? Anybody remember that? People said, I don't share the gospel because of the way that I know that I live. The inconsistent life. Folks, think about that. You know, Satan must delight in things like that. He knows he can't do one thing about preventing what Christ has done for us. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Those are things God's already accomplished and he couldn't have prevented that anyway. But if Satan can get Christians living such dirty and polluted and compromised lives that they're even ashamed to share their faith, then he's won a victory in that regard. He hasn't won the war. The war is already won. But Satan uh, always keeps battle skirmishes stirred up. You know, it kind of reminds me of what happened in America with Iraq. Uh, the U.S. troops went in there a short amount of time. I still remember that day like it was yesterday. I was preaching a revival down in uh, Mullins, South Carolina on the TV that April 10, 2003. Breaking news, the soldiers were pulling down that statue uh, in Baghdad of Saddam Hussein. Uh, but you know, since then, terrorists have kept skirmishes stirred up. I mean, think of all the years that our troops have been over there and in Afghanistan. Well, one strategy Satan 
has is to get Christians off course, get us living in such a way that even though our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, our life is not effective because of the compromises. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. The breastplate of righteousness is our subject. Now I want you to remember the original setting, what scholars will refer to as the sits in Laban of this passage, the original life setting of this passage. Paul was, as he's writing the book of Ephesians, that's one of his captivity letters. And uh, Paul talks about being chained. Uh, in Philippians 1, for example, about being chained to Roman soldiers. He had a captive audience, didn't he? Uh, and as he's chained to that Roman soldier, probably what he's seeing in that Roman soldier's uh, equipment, his armor, provides some of the inspiration in this analogy. And last week, you know, we talked about the believer's belt of truth and how today we live in a day that rejects absolute truth. But what is truth? God's Word is truth. In John 17, Jesus said, Father, sanctify them with your Word. Your Word is truth. Sunday morning we talked about the statement on Scriptures in the Baptist Faith and Message. The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of Himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction that has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. That's the belt of truth. And right after the belt of truth, what's Paul mentioned next? The breastplate of righteousness. The truth lived out. Let's look tonight at righteousness in a couple of different senses. First of all, God's activity in righteousness. How does the scripture define righteousness? Well, we could, we could talk about imputed. What's that, what's that mean? Imputed. What is imputed righteousness? Exactly. Exactly. Write down 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Imputed righteousness is that means by which in the mind and heart of God, your sin, my sin, was laid upon Christ at the cross and he died for you. Christ died in your stead and you are the recipient of His righteousness. Folks, so many in the world today get messed up here. They think they've got to earn salvation. And the Bible's clear, you can't. And the book of Romans makes that so clear. All, whether Jew or Gentile, are under the just wrath of a holy God. We're all guilty. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Gentiles have fallen short of the glory of God in that they have suppressed the truth of God and put idols in place of God. The second half of Romans 1. And then they've tried to come up with their own righteousness and own religions, idolatry. Paul says, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now just before that, he said, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Folks, that's God's verdict 
of humanity. And then the Jew, the religionist, might have been standing back cheering the Apostle Paul as he wrote these verses and talked about the Gentiles there. Because they felt like they had obeyed God. They kept the law. And so in chapter 2, Paul says to them, Therefore you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this old man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you're going to escape the judgment of God? He goes on in, in verse 20 of chapter 3 to say, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And, and then he goes on in that same, same vein to, to talk about, um, well, let me just go back and read it. Beginning there in verse 21. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Because obviously the law exposes our need of the gospel. Folks, I'm just spending a little bit of time there this evening because it's so important. We can only be righteous as we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You don't have righteousness on your own, and I don't either. Somebody might say, but I'm a good person. Well, actually we're not, but if you were going to try to be justified by that standard, what would you have to be? You would have to be perfect. From the time you were born to the time you died, you'd have to live without sin of any sort. And not only that, but you know, there's sins of omission too. We, we fail to live up to the glory of God even when we do right. So you'd have to be perfect in all regards. And the scripture says you're guilty at one point and you've broken the whole. You've sinned against the whole. So again, what's the chances of being righteous on your own? Zero. Zero. But the good news of the gospel is, through Christ, His righteousness is imparted to us. The free gift of God, Paul says in Romans 6.23, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then Paul makes clear in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that everything pertaining to salvation, even the faith to believe, it's all a gift from God from beginning to end. Again, all human boasting is nullified. You know, you and I could insist on justice and what would we get? hell and condemnation or grace and, and receive what? Through Christ. Salvation. Today it's absolutely essential 
uh, not just today, any day, I'm not just saying today, but I just mean it's absolutely essential to enjoy to have God's imputed righteousness if you're going to be reconciled to God and see Christ one day. If you don't know Christ and have not looked to Him and Him alone, then God needs to stir your heart. It needs to be your prayer. God, stir my heart and bring about that regeneration, that quickening that only you can do. Uh, imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. And what's Romans 8 say? Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want to read something to you from Richard Mayhew and John MacArthur uh, about this subject matter. Bear with me a minute. It's two kind of big pages. They talk about the forgiveness of sins, the imputation of our sin to Christ. And ultimately, he's going to talk about the passive obedience of Christ and the active obedience of Christ. And I'll explain that more. They say, first, God imputes our sin to Christ. For our sake, He, the Father, made Him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Now, in what sense did the Father make the Son sin on our behalf? In only one sense. The Father counted Jesus to have committed all the sins of all those who would ever repent and believe in Him. He did not actually make Jesus a sinner. It would be, a bla it would be blasphemous to suggest that the God-man was actually made a sinner, for God cannot sin. Instead, since justification is a legal declaration, the Father judicial, judiciously reckoned Christ to have committed uh, the sins of those for whom he was giving himself as a substitute. Just as the scapegoat bore the guilt of Israel when Aaron confessed the people's sins over its head, so the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, such that Christ actually bore our sins in his body on the tree. And just as the blood of the goat of the sin offering was sprinkled on the mercy seat to propitiate God's wrath, so also was Christ put forward as a propitiation by His blood, Romans 3.25. Though innumerable sinners will escape divine punishment, no sin will ever go unpunished, for every sin of the elect has been reckoned to Christ and punished in Him on the cross. In this way, divine justice is satisfied. Sin has not merely been dismissed or swept under the rug. It has been justly punished in a substitute. This is the gospel through which Christ, uh, through which God demonstrates his righteousness so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Therefore, because the believer's sins have been imputed to and punished in Christ, they're not counted against him. As Paul quotes David's words from Psalm 32, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Because they've been counted or imputed to Christ, the believer's sins are not imputed to or counted against him. They are forgiven and covered. Therefore, the justified believer faces no condemnation but enjoys peace with God and the sure hope of eternal life. And then he talks about the provision of righteousness, the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. But the forgiveness of sins does not exhaust God's work in justification. In fact, if the only benefit believers received in justification were the forgiveness of our sins, we could not be saved. The old Sunday school definition of justification, just as if I had never sinned, is inadequate because salvation is not merely a matter of sinlessness or innocence, but is also a matter of righteousness. The law of God, which man broke, thereby incurring the death penalty, carries both 
positive demands and penal sanctions. That is to say, God's law requires both that his creatures perform certain duties suitable to his righteousness and two, that they undergo a certain punishment if they fail to perform those duties. Man has failed to do both. We do not live lives of perfect righteousness, walking in obedience to God in all things, loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Neither could we pay the penalty that our disobedience demands without perishing eternally in hell. Therefore, if we are to be saved, our substitute must not only pay our penalty by absorbing the wrath of God against our sin, but must also obey all the positive demands of the law that were required of us. This twofold nature of Christ's substitutionary work is sometimes referred to as his passive obedience and active obedience. John Murray explains, the law of God has both penal sanctions and positive demands. It demands not only the full discharge of its precepts, but also the infliction of penalty for all infractions and shortcomings. It is this twofold demand of the law of God which is taken into account when we speak of the active and passive obedience of Christ. Christ as the uh, vicar of his people came under the curse and condemnation due to sin and he also fulfilled the law of God in all its positive requirements. In other words, he took care of the guilt of sin and perfectly fulfilled the demands of righteousness. He perfectly met both the penal and the preceptive requirements of God's law. The passive obedience refers to the former, the active to the latter. Without the positive provision of righteousness, mere forgiveness would, would leave us in a state of innocence or moral neutrality as Adam was before the fall, reckoned as never having sinned, but as never having obeyed either. For this reason, Scripture speaks of the justified sinner being counted righteous in addition to being forgiven. God's people testify to this in Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. In fact, salvation is described in terms of imputed righteousness as early as God's dealings with Abraham. Genesis 15, 6 says that Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. The Apostle Paul quotes this very verse in Romans 4, 3 to substantiate his argument for justification on the basis of an imputed righteousness. He then comments now to the one who works his wages were not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That's a mouthful, isn't it? You ready for a test on that? <laughs> Impute, the necessity of imputed righteousness. Well, let's, let's think secondly then about my response to God's activity. My response. You and I have the obligation upon us to live the converted life. The fruit of salvation. And I want to, I want to mention six things that it's based upon. My Christian, re, my response to imputed righteousness. It's first of all based on the character of God. God is a righteous God. God does what is right. You and I are to bear the fruit of righteousness because he's a righteous God. James 1 talks about that. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. 
And he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God always does what's right. And so Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself, yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. In other words, like father, like son. There's to be a family resemblance. The only paternity test that the world has for the Christian is that they see the character of our Heavenly Father in us. And if He's done a work of grace in our lives, spiritually quickening us, that should be seen. There ought to be fruit of that. Secondly, my response is, is based on the mercies of God. Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You hear what Paul's saying there? When he's gathering up the whole argument in Romans 1 through 11 so far about how we were, we were dead and God made us alive in Christ and God worked, worked the work of salvation in your heart and my heart to, to, to bring about regeneration in us, what should your response be to that? It ought to be that you would be eager to surrender to Him and be a living sacrifice. Thirdly, it's based on the work of Christ. Paul says in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, If then you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on things that are on the earth, for you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Fourthly, it's based on your true identity. Philippians 3, 20 and 21, for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He is even to subject all things to Himself. Fifthly, it should be motivated by the shortness of time. Romans 13, 11-14. And this do, knowing the time that it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to uh, to its lust. And then also, it's critical to your testimony. 1 Peter 2.12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In short, the Bible says that we are to adorn the gospel. We are to adorn the gospel, the doctrines of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Imputed righteousness. 
imputed righteousness, God's activity, and then my response to it. God gets all the glory, but I'm to live a godly life. I'm to put on the breastplate of righteousness. And then notice what he goes on to say. We're going to try to cover two tonight. Not only the breastplate of righteousness, but he goes on to say, and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. By the gospel of peace. Now folks, think about the paradox here. The, the, the gospel has some paradoxes to it, doesn't it? In, in a passage about warfare, he's talking about peace. You see where I'm going with that? Paradoxes. You know, Jesus, like when Jesus said, if you want to save your life, you've got to do what? You've got to lose it. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Paradoxes. Again, a paradox here. Engaged in spiritual warfare, and yet he talks about peace. Peace. We can enjoy the peace of God, and we, we can enjoy peace with God, I should say, and enjoy the peace of God. And he, he talks about that in this analogy using shoes. Now, Shoes were very, very important to the Roman soldier. Uh, there's general agreement here that the shoes mentioned were the half boot of the soldier. They were short. They came around the ankles. They had straps that wrapped around the leg. So they couldn't come off very easily in the midst of battle. They had thick leather soles, open toes, and embedded into the soles were hobnails for traction. They would be involved in close hand-to-hand -hand combat, possibly on slippery surfaces. And so their shoes were critical. Their shoes weren't a fashion statement. They were for function. Well, he talks here about the gospel of peace. And I want us to look at it from, from different angles. In fact... Interpreters will handle it differently. For example, John R. W. Stott in his commentary on, on Ephesians talks about the language here, the Greek, and the genitive case, and it can be further broken down. Uh, it can be taken in the subjective sense, I'm going to explain all this, or the objective sense. If you take it in the subjective, it refers to the peace that you have with God. If you take it in the objective, it refers to the peace of God that you enjoy and can in turn share with others. There's a bit of ambiguity in this. Maybe we're to see both. First of all would be peace with God. Peace with God. We need peace with God because sin separates us from God. And we are enemies of God. Isaiah 59 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, neither is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Our sins have separated us from God. We're like the prodigal son who in his sin was in the faraway country, away from his loving father. And just like I talked a moment ago with the righteousness, the Bible says a paycheck for that kind of life is death. Physical death, spiritual death. And we see that in the Bible, don't we? Beginning with Adam and Eve. After they sinned against God, they were running away from God, hiding from God. They were estranged from God. There was a gulf between them and God. And that's where the unsaved person lives, that great gulf that separates them. <clears throat> and again, just like before with righteousness, the Bible says, at the cross, Christ reconciled you to God, making peace.
peace. Paul says he made peace through what? The blood of the cross, as he says in Colossians. And so when a person is regenerated, they come into a state, they're no longer enemies of God, but they're reconciled to God. They're in a state of peace with God. Peace with God. Even King David said in the Old Testament, Blessed is the man whose sin is covered, whose sin the Lord will not hold against him. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Wonderful promise. That's where peace begins. Peace with God. You've been reconciled with him. You were his enemy. I was his enemy. We were at odds with him. But God, again, God taking the initiative through the cross made peace through the blood of the cross. And then, if you take it in the objective sense, the peace of God. The peace of God. Now, I told you we're taking more of a topical approach, which not my favorite to do always, but there's a time and place for it. You want to talk about the peace of God? I think about Isaiah 26, 3, where the scripture says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. The source of this wonderful peace is God, Yahweh. Psalm 29, 11 says, The Lord will give strength to His people. The Lord will bless His people with peace. Folks, do you realize that God is at perfect peace? There is nothing in our world going on that has God pacing about uh, from His throne in heaven, wringing His hands, saying, oh my, look at the mess on earth. What am I going to do? God is at perfect peace. <clears throat> true peace is something only God can give. And true peace is a lot more than just the absence of conflict. It is a calm assurance in the depths of your innermost being. God is spoken of as the everlasting strength, or literally, the rock of ages. Now look at what Isaiah goes on to say here. If we continue to look at this passage in Isaiah 26, 3. Look at what he says in, in uh, verse 3 there. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. The Hebrew says you will keep him in shalom, shalom, peace, peace. Shalom's the Hebrew for peace. And it's repeated, shalom, shalom. You'll keep him in shalom, shalom. In Hebrew, that's one of the ways to really emphasize something. And so the English translations, picking up on that it's to be emphasized, say you will keep him in Complete peace or perfect peace? God's peace that he gives to his children isn't intermittent or occasional. We're given a peace that's permanent. You will keep him in perfect peace. Keep him. The idea is of a garrison being set around us. A garrison of peace that never ends. We are given a peace that is perfect. And because it's God's peace, it's a peace that surpasses all understanding. The world gives a peace based on what? Outer circumstances. But the peace God gives is in spite of circumstances. And folks, God's not promising something He can't deliver. All through the Bible... We see the power of God. We see the power of God in creation. In those early chapters of Genesis, we see the power of God in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We see the power of God in making the gospel effectual. 
I mean, Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. We also see the power of God in delivering his people, the children of Israel out of Egypt. God's done all these wonderful things and more. God is able to give a complete and a, pur a purposeful and all-encompassing peace. The secret of it that he says here, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For in Yahweh, the Lord is everlasting strength. In our minds is where so much of our turmoil and fears rest. <coughs> but to stay our minds in simple trust upon Yahweh is to know perfect peace. What's the ingredient? A mind fixed on God. A mind fixed on God. I think of David in Psalm 3. He's on the run from his, his son Absalom. And Absalom has stirred up all these mobs against David and they're pursuing David to put him to death and install Absalom as the new king. And as David flees, what are the people shouting? The people are shouting, there is no help for him in God. None. No help for him. What's David turn around and say? Lord, you are a shield for me. And then he goes on to say... I lay down and slept, I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. Imagine that, having somebody pursue your very life and you're able to lay down and go to sleep like a baby. Now folks, that's peace, isn't it? For those who have peace with God, we can enjoy the peace of God. And we also see here that we're to be emissaries of this peace. You know, when he says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. It's a peace that is to be shared with others. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God is a merciful God. Those who have peace with God and hopefully are enjoying the peace of God can be emissaries of that type of peace to others, announcing the good news of the gospel. Now folks, think of it in that sense, in warfare, talking about armor. What is a very serious way to go against the enemy? <coughs> What's a very effective and serious and wonderful way to go against the enemy? Announcing, announcing the good news of the gospel and seeing people come to Christ. People who might have been very much following the evil one's desires for their life. And we're announcing the peace of God to those who were held captive to the enemy in unbelief. We announce the gospel. And some of those to whom we preach to, some of those believe. Wonderful way in warfare, right? God's plan is that those who enjoy peace with God go and tell. In Romans 10, Paul says, How beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good news. Now there's some background to that. At the end of the battle, when Roman soldiers had won, 
they had runners. And these runners would sometimes run for miles and miles and miles into a nearby city. And when they ran into that city, they would announce the good news of victory. The battle had been won. Now imagine if you're somebody living in that town and you were awaiting word to find out about your father, your brother, your son. And here came a runner announcing victory and you learned that your loved one was alive and the battle's been won. What good news. How beautiful would be the feet of that one running who came announcing good news. That's, that's the analogy Paul's given in Romans 10. How beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good news. And that's what we get to be in this battle, in this spiritual warfare. We get to be runners. Those who have peace with God and the peace of God. And we're running announcing the good news that the battle's been won at the cross to those who need to know. That's the privilege we have. And I think that's one of the reasons he includes that here in this analogy. The feet and the runner. The safety that the shoes gave and then the runner who would announce good news. I want you to think about this tonight. You know, taking last week the belt of truth, the whole counsel of God. Folks, that's got to be first. That's got, to be, that's got to be in place in our lives. Being devoted to putting on that piece of armor. The belt of truth. God's truth. And then the breastplate of righteousness. Living out God's truth. Before a watching world. Lives that are lived in integrity for the sake of the gospel. <coughs> And then the shoes of peace. Peace with God. Peace of God. And running with these shoes of peace. Being like the town crier or the runner who would go into town <coughs> announcing the good news of victory. And that's our privilege as Christians to be able to do that work of proclaiming the good news. Because God promises to use that Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Not everybody will believe. But God has His children. Some will believe. And so again, He's adding one piece after another. Are you putting on the belt of truth? Are you living out the gospel? Are you living a life of integrity? Do you have peace with God? And you're announcing that peace to others. That's a battleship mentality, not a cruise ship mentality. There'll be time for the cruise ship. Okay. Well, we'll continue next week. We'll, uh, we'll talk about the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Any comments or questions? <clears throat> we'll go to the Lord in prayer. I just have one question. Based on all you read, mm -hmm. based on what you said, Adam still needed a Savior before he sinned. Because he was created innocent, not righteous. Does that make sense? Right. No, he was he was under that, that covenant of, of innocence. It was after he sinned that God the skins, that was a prefiguring of sacrifice because the blood that would have been shed, the skins of the animals for him and Eve to be covered. Right. 
their nakedness, which indicated their, their, they had been awakened to sin. So if he had never sinned, he would have still gone to heaven with his innocence? Well, he was walking with God in the cool of the day in the garden. Yeah. He was in the garden with God. Okay. And driven from the garden. And then at the end of the Bible, what do we see? Essentially, garden language yes. restored. Revelation 20 and 21. But the, your question, did God know all this? Of course He did. Because Scripture yes, says Christ was crucified from the foundation of the world. Absolutely. That's where I was, in my mind, I was saying, well, Christ had already died, in, like you said, a slain. So Adam, I guess, had already had that relationship and believed in God and therefore it was counted to him as righteousness through Jesus who was already slain even before he sinned. That makes sense. Am I just rambling? I'm not sure I followed you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think it was something that you read from a book that implied that. That implied something about Adam and him not there was something though. I know what I, I know where Kathy's coming from. Okay. I don't care. Don't worry about it. Don't bother these people. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just think about it at a better table. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if, yes. if Adam didn't sin, there wouldn't be a heaven or a hell, right? I mean, there wouldn't be a neat. There would be no death if Adam didn't sin, right. because death entered through sin. So Romans five, death came through. One I guess the ideal would have been walking in the garden with God, so there wouldn't have been. You know, need for that garden would have essentially been equivalent to what we see in Revelation 20 and 21. Or I should say 21 and 22. I'm sorry. They, he enjoyed perfect fellowship with God in the garden and God walking with him. So death, the wages of sin, the separation from God came about only because of his sin. And Eden was really like heaven. Sure. And that's why I say I mean, basically we have Eden, Eden restored at the end of the Bible. Yeah. The Bible is from a garden to a garden. It's that picture of that perfect garden fellowship with God, walking with God. That's what's restored at the end of the Bible. And in between is this Scarlet Thread of Redemption storyline. But God knew. He knew. Oh, sure. Absolutely. God knew. Because again, Christ was crucified from the foundation of the world. Man doesn't take God by surprise. God's not reacting to what we do. He's the initiator, not the reactor. Okay. Uh, who would lead us tonight? Volunteer? Any volunteer? Let's pray for these folks. Everybody's bashful. Charlie, get us started in, in prayer. Father, uh, just thank you for this lesson tonight. Uh, help us to take it all in and understand that we might be better servants to you. You have always been good and you continue to be good, Father. We just thank you for that. And Lord, as we look at our list on the board tonight. Uh, we just ask that you would be with each individual, Father. You know those that need healing. You know those that are, are uh, sad by uh, death in the family. And uh, you can be that comforter that they need at this moment. That you just be by them to steal them, Father. And uh, just let them feel your loving arms. And Lord, we thank you for uh, this day, 
thank you, Father, for this coming week, that you'll be with us and keep us. And we just praise your name and lift you up on high, Lord, because you are our hope and that we stand upon you, Father. And give us boldness to take the gospel message and to share it with those you bring across our path that they might be reconciled to a holy God. Because, Father, without you in their life, they will spend eternity separated and in misery. And Father, I pray that you just impress that on our minds. That someone that does not know you is going to spend an awful time for eternity. And that we should not want anyone to go anywhere except to be with you. And I pray, Father, please give us boldness to tell and uh, that we might be faithful and good servants. In Jesus' name I pray. Any others? Father, I know it's a, it's a cliche now, but nonetheless, it's very true that we do not fight for victory, but from victory. From your victory. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And our weapons are not like the weapons of the world, but even as Paul said in 2 Corinthians uh, 10, that we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Lord, when we think about our weapons and our armor, tonight as we think about righteousness and peace we we see both gift and demand your activity clothing us in your righteousness and accomplishing peace for us at the cross and then in each case our response to that 
living righteously and enjoying the peace of God and announcing that peace. Lord, we're reminded that the power is yours. Even as Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You can do nothing apart from me. Lord, we're, we're reminded of that daily. We dare not stand or fight in our strength and our own provisions or the provisions of the world. Lord, help us to take up this armor that we might stand and stand firm in the evil day. Lord, all around us, we see the evidence of this warfare. And we see how Satan is captiv captivating the minds of unbelievers. It's, it's incredible to see the unbelief in society. It doesn't surprise us. But to see the fruit of that unbelief and the hostility oftentimes towards the gospel. Lord, strengthen your church that we would be ready in these days in which we live. Lord, we do pray for those who are depending tonight on our prayers. Some of them have already been mentioned. We're so grateful for Dot and Russell and their witness among us and their years of faithfulness. And Lord, how even as senior adults and even older senior adults, they were constantly embarking upon new challenges in the faith, new commitments. Like Caleb with Joshua, 80 years old, said, give me that mountain. And that's the way Dot and Russell have lived their lives and such an encouragement to us as long as there's breath in us that we're to keep following you and whatever that you call us and invite us to do. Lord, be with them during this time. Just give them your perfect peace that does indeed surpass all understanding. May you be their tower of strength and their shield and their refuge. Lord, we're grateful for the decades that we enjoyed company with Mary and Pressler, such a servant of yours, the way she loved you and loved your people, such a kind lady filled with the fruit of the Spirit. We thank you that she sees by sight what we can only see by faith. Continue to be with her family, and just write uh, upon their hearts and minds all these precious memories that they have. Lord, we want to pray for Ronnie Knowles' family too as they continue to try to make plans that uh, you'd be with the three girls in, in a special way and especially the one who is not walking in fellowship with you and how the other two sisters are trying to reach her and encourage her. Lord, I pray that the service would be used for your purposes. For Helen Andrews, I pray, God, that you would continue to sustain her day by day. And you've got a perfect plan for her. And Lord, we just pray that her suffering would be minimal. And I pray that these would be special days with her daughter who's caring for her. Lord, we want to pray also for uh, Phyllis Walker in the long-term care and how Linda is saying that uh, that will not be good for her. Lord, you have all of our days numbered and uh, we just ask you that until it's time that you determine to call Phyllis home, just see to it that she gets the care that, that is needed. Lord, we pray for this unspoken request of the steroid abuse. We 
We pray that you would open the eyes of that young man that he might see and understand clearly how uh, he's destroying his body. And Lord, I pray that if he's not a believer, first of all, that you'd remove the veil from his eyes, that he would see the glory of God in Christ and be saved. And then he'd realize that he's to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we just pray that you would deliver him from, from this steroid abuse and apparently the desire he has to be bigger and bulkier and it's just all about the flesh and strength. And, uh, Lord, just wake him up to what he's doing. For Dennis, we thank you for Dennis and Lord. And Lord, the way they've stepped in to raise their grandkids and to give their grandkids a a future. Lord, sustain them day by day. Give them wisdom as they're, they're embarking upon now essentially raising a new family as a much older uh, couple. So just provide for them what they need. Lord, prepare our hearts as we leave here. Open our eyes to opportunities around us, the people who cross our paths, the the people that we can proclaim the gospel of peace to. May we be found faithful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.